Welcome to the Wagner Ministries International Podcast. As you listen to this message, our prayer is that you would be motivated and empowered to follow Christ and lead others to Him. Enjoy. Hello friends, this is Evangelist Kevin Wagner from Wagner Ministries International welcoming you to our podcast today. I have an exciting message, I believe, from the Holy Spirit that is going to both thrill you and encourage you and build you up in your walk with Jesus today. So let's get right into this. Uh, You know I've been preaching through the book of Acts, which is my favorite book of the Bible, and I'm now looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. So you can turn in your Bibles to that if you want to and follow along. Now, on our last podcast, we spent time on verses 4 through 11 of Acts 1. And we were blessed by hearing Jesus' last words before he returned to glory. We were also amazed at the disciples' narrow vision, their short-sightedness when it came to the things of God. God had far more in store for the world through Jesus' death and resurrection than merely restoring the earthly kingdom of Israel, like the disciples thought he would. But not only were we amazed at their short-sightedness, we were also amazed at ours. Have you found yourself tapping into God's big vision for your life and our world recently? I pray that you have. And now Jesus leaves us with one last instruction, to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the blessed Holy Spirit. And so we pick up the story there, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The place where the disciples were staying, friends, was an upstairs room that was large enough to house at least 120 people, as verse 15 says. This could well have been the same room that they ate the Last Supper in, the same room that Jesus appeared to them twice in his glorified, resurrected body, recalled in John chapter 20, first without Thomas and then with him there. It may also have been the place where the Holy Spirit fell on the believers at Pentecost, which we'll get into in our next podcast. The simple fact of the matter is that there wouldn't have been too many safe places for the early believers to stay in Jerusalem, as John 20 verse 19 makes clear that the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. There was a hostile climate at that time between the unbelieving Jews and the believers. This makes it all the more likely that when a safe place was found, they would be content with staying put there. The list of the 11 apostles in verse 13 is the same list minus Judas the traitor that Luke records in Luke chapter 6. Matthew 10 and Mark 3 also list the names of the apostles. The names in all four lists are identical, with one exception. Matthew and Mark number a man named Thaddeus among the twelve. Luke and Acts records his name as Judas, son of James. This is a somewhat trivial point, but is something that skeptics like to grumble over at times. Suffice it to say that just as Simon was also called Peter and Matthew, Levi, It takes no great deduction that Thaddeus could well have also been named Judas. 
A point, however, that is perhaps more tempting for skeptics to ridicule is found in the account of uh, Judas's death given by Peter. I'm reading from verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Friends, there are people, you know them. You've met some. Perhaps you're friends with some. Perhaps you live with some. I pray you're not one yourself. But whoever they are, these people get a, shall I say, twisted pleasure out of pointing out what appear to be inconsistencies in the Bible. Now, not all people who ask honest questions about apparent contradictions in the Bible are of this sort. I would dare say that every devout believer has asked questions like this in order to seek a deeper understanding and love for God's Word. However, there are those who point out inconsistencies for less noble reasons, namely to attempt to destroy the intellectual credibility of believing in the Bible as God's Word. It is thought that if errors can be pointed out in the Bible, then none of the Bible can be believed, or worse, only those points that one wants to can be believed. The death of Judas is one such apparently contradictory account. Let's look at these two accounts. First, I'll read Matthew's account in chapter 27, verses 3 to 10. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the thirty silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Now, that was Matthew's account of Judas's death. Here's the account again in Acts, verse 18. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So in Acts, Judas bought the field of blood, fell headlong, and burst open in his midsection. In Matthew, Judas hung himself, and the chief priest bought the field of blood. Here is the solution to what some would say is an apparent contradiction. Judas hung himself, the rope and or branch it was attached to broke, and his stomach ruptured due to the fall. The priests then bought the field with Judas' money, but this could be regarded as Judas' purchase by their agency, since it was his money that was used to buy the field. Matthew wrote for a wide circle of readers not knowing the case. He thus only states the main fact. 
passing over the details. Peter, talking to those who knew the recent facts, assumes the main fact is already known by all and deals more with the details. The great Princeton scholar J.A. Alexander concludes, There is scarcely an American or English jury that would sample to receive the two accounts as perfectly consistent. Many other apparent biblical contradictions are explained just as easily. We need to ask ourselves, are our questions motivated by faith or unbelief? For example, when a person asks you when you'll be home on a given night, he is either a friend or a robber. Both are asking the same question, but each with a stark difference as to the motivation behind which their question is being asked. Most people try to undermine biblical authority so they don't have to listen when the Bible convicts them of their sin. They don't want to change their behavior. Instead, they would rather change the rules. So ask yourselves, if apparent contradictions in the Bible trouble you, why is that? Is it for noble or less than noble reasons? Verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. In order to determine God's will for Judas' successor, the disciples cast lots. This would consist of writing each name on a tablet, placing them in an urn, and then shaking the urn until one came out. This is the last time and the only time in the New Testament that believers in the Bible ever used this method to determine God's will. There is good Old Testament precedent, however. The practice was recognized in the law in Leviticus. The twelve tribes were given their land in Canaan on the basis of casting lots. The crew on Jonah's boat cast lots to discover who was responsible for the horrible storm they hit. And Proverbs 16.33, perhaps more than any verse in the Bible, shows how much faith the Old Testament believers put in the lot. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. But now we live in a new time, don't we? A new dispensation, the time of the Holy Spirit. And you see, the Counselor, as he is called, gives us wisdom and words from God about his will that were previously unavailable because the Holy Spirit didn't live per permanently in believers until Jesus was glorified. A lot of things changed, you know, between Acts 1 and Acts 2, the old and the new dispensation. A lot of things are different between the Old and New Testament times. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus made the perfect sacrifice once and for all. We don't have to rely on a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for our sins because when Jesus died, the veil to the Holy of Holies was rent in twain 
and we can now boldly approach the throne of the living God, clothed with the blood-stained righteousness of Jesus. And we don't have to rely on the drawing of lots to determine God's will. He has now provided a better way, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. I want to close today's podcast by spending some time sharing how we can know God's will for our individual lives and family, and for humanity in general. How many of us haven't longed to know, Lord, should I go out with this guy or girl? Lord, is this the person you want me to marry? Lord, do you want me to take this job opportunity to make this move? Lord, should I invest my money in this or not? Lord, what should I do with my life? And on and on and on it goes. We all have a lot of questions like these. We all long to hear a word from God saying yes or no, don't we? Well, I'm going to give you some biblical guidelines today that will help you in making decisions by knowing God's will. In those areas specifically addressed by the Bible, the revealed commands and principles of God, His moral laws, we are to obey them, for example, sex before marriage, marrying an unbeliever, etc. In those areas where the Bible gives no command or principle, non-moral decisions, the Bible is free and responsible, the believer is free and responsible to choose his own course of action. Any decision made within the moral will of God is acceptable to God, for example, which believer to marry, which honest investment to make, etc. In those non-moral decisions, the objective of the Christian is to make wise decisions on the basis of spiritual expediency. In other words, we need to make wise decisions based on the wise counsel of God. To acquire God's wise counsel, we need the right attitude, reverence, humility, being teachable, diligence, uprightness, and faith. God's wise counsel comes through scripture and through personal research. Check out the options, the pros and cons of the decision. His wisdom also comes through talking with other mature believers and seeking their input. We also learn God's wisdom through the applied lessons of life. In other words, good old common sense learned from years of triumph and failures. Here's where the difference between the Old and New Testament comes into play. Where the new dispensation of the Holy Spirit allows us an advantage in discovering God's will over the believers that preceded the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is often in the Old Testament referred to as wisdom. In fact, in Proverbs, the Holy Spirit is even personified as wisdom. In Proverbs 8, we read these verses. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. Isaiah 11, 1 verse 2 says this, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Ephesians 1, 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The point is that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom from God to make decisions and know his will that we wouldn't have without him. The great reformer Martin Luther said, the Holy Spirit's purpose is to call, gather, 
enlighten, and sanctify human beings. The Holy Spirit also allows the words of Scripture to come alive to us, to breathe life into the Word of God in a way that was not as possible, constant, and consistent before He came. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says this, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. When we're seeking God's will to make godly and wise decisions, scriptural guidance is the biggest part of this. But for the Bible to make any sense and speak with power to our situations, we need the Holy Spirit to breathe life into those words. Those are the blessings that we have as believers living in the new age of the Holy Spirit, the post-Pentecost days. Friends, there is a big change between Acts 1 and Acts 2. Drawing lots is just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. On our next podcast, we'll see that power of God in action. Have a blessed day in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by today's message. For more information regarding Wagner Ministries International, go to wagnerministries.org. And if you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at wagnerministries.org. God bless.